My name is Steve Gilman, and for decades I've been helping brands engage with their audiences. On this podcast, we'll connect the dots in the fast-paced world of branding by talking with entrepreneurs, leaders, and marketers on the front lines of telling brand stories. Today we're talking to Pat Craig, Executive Director of the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg, Colorado. The sanctuary sits on over 10,500 acres and provides natural habitat for hundreds of rescued lions, tigers, and other exotic animals. On today's episode, Pat shares what inspired him to start the rescue and how being specific about your audience and telling great stories can make a big difference to your organization. Welcome to the Brand Story Podcast. My name is Steve Gilman, and our guest today is Pat Craig, Executive Director of the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Keensburg, Colorado. Uh, Here's some really quick background on the Wild Animal Sanctuary for listeners that don't know what this organization is and how great they are. It's the world's largest and oldest carnivore sanctuary and sits on over 10,500 acres of natural habitat. The rescued animals get to explore that, and it's home to lions, tigers, bears, wolves, leopards, just to name a couple. And uh, they really are true pioneers in creating large acre habitats for, for the big carnivores to live. And Pat has over 40 years of experience in rescuing large carnivores and has been key to creating and building the unique place that is the Wild Animal Sanctuary. He also lectures nationally on wildlife rescue and has worked tirelessly for the protection of these animals. So Pat, hi, welcome. No, thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for doing this today. I think our listeners, this is going to be a little different for us as we're a podcast that concentrates on brand storytelling and and leadership, but honestly, your brand I think is pretty amazing, and the journey you all have been through is uh, pretty extraordinary. Well, thank you. It's a little different for sure. Yeah, it is. And uh, uh, my vice president Lindsay has actually been on your property. She did one of those. Uh, she owns one of those uh, sponsorships that sponsors an acre. Oh yeah, oh yeah, very cool. She's been on your walkway and been there, and very passionate. And so that's great. Yeah. So I've I've also uh, uh, become very. Uh, uh, passionate about what you all do and we're just big supporters. Absolutely. Well, thank you. It's kind of you. So let's talk a little bit about how you got started in all this. I know you weren't intending to go into annual animal rescue at all. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I grew up on a farm, um, outside of the city of Boulder, Colorado, and, and, uh, it was just a small gentleman's farm, nothing big. And so we had horses and cows and chickens and things like that. And so I loved animals, but you know, 41 years ago, there wasn't a lot of careers for people that were going to do anything with animals um, like there is today. And and so, you know, I just thought I'd love to keep doing the farm. And so I was going to just go to college and get a business degree and um, and then continue to own the farm and, you know, keep the animals around, that kind of thing. Um, and so it was something where um, at one point I got a chance to go visit a friend of mine from high school who had gotten a job at, as a groundskeeper at a zoo. And so he took me around and I'm in the back and which I wouldn't even expect him, but he kind of showed me around and in the back of the zoo, they had all these lions and tigers in small cages. And I was kind of confused. I said, why do we, why do we have all these small animal or these animals in small cages? And he said, well, they were surplus. And I said, what do you mean surplus? And, and he said, well, these were babies that were in the nursery that are now too big and, and we don't have any room out front. And, uh, and I said, so they don't even get to, you know, take turns going into the exhibit or anything. And he said, no. And I said, they're just going to live in these cages all their life and he said well no we try to find other homes at other zoos but most zoos have the same problem so we end up euthanizing them and i said well wait a minute that's crazy i mean these aren't old they're not sick they're not anything and you're euthanizing them i said you know i just made no sense and so it kind of caught me off guard and i was kind of bummed about the whole thing but obviously this was a kind of a a surprise thing to me of visiting and wasn't expecting to do any of this but 
So I came back to Colorado and was going to school still, and but every day it kept bugging me. And so I thought, well, I grew up here, and Colorado has uh, one of the biggest zoos in the country. So I called the Denver Zoo and said, hey, you know, a friend of mine has all these works at the zoo, and they have all these animals that need help. You know, can you take some of them? And they said, oh, no, we have two tigers out front, and we have seven in the back right now. And I was like, oh, so this is a big problem. They said, yeah, it's all over. And all the zoos have tons of surplus, and unfortunately, a lot of them euthanize animals. And so I just thought it was kind of crazy, and I and so it still bugged me for a while. And so then I ended up just calling the the federal government and the state government that regulate zoos and said, you know, can't you make it illegal to to breed unless something died and you need to replace it? And and they said, no, they they're licensed, they can do whatever they want. And and I said, well, they're euthanizing healthy animals. I said that seems crazy. I mean, these are majestic creatures. You know, lions, tigers, things like that, and and so I said, well, in their humane society for them, and they said, no, there's there's no humane society, and I said, well, what would it take to make one? And they said, well, you'd have to build a zoo. And I said, well, I'm, I'm only 17, I'm not right. going to build a zoo, but I do want to help, and I do have a farm, and I do have land, so maybe I can maybe help some. And so they sent me the regulations, and I looked them over and realized that I'd have to build a lot of specialized cages and. So I did, and and then once I got licensed and inspected and all that, I sent a letter to every zoo in the country that that just said, hey, I know you have surplus, but if you're going to euthanize something, let me know because maybe I can help. And and I really just thought there'd be you know some sort of small response, but nothing big. And and in the first month, I ended up getting over 300 responses, and it was my just my mail because back then I didn't have you know cell phones or fax machine or anything. Yeah, and right. So these were just letters coming in every day with lists of animals, you know, everything from elephants to uh, alligators to chimpanzees, but but the vast majority were definitely lions and tigers and things like that. That's insane. That's crazy. Yeah. So you, I read that you became the youngest certified person that was certified in in doing this kind of animal rescue. Yeah, I was the youngest zoo, licensed zoo <laughs> zoo owner, if you want to call it that, right. in, the, in the country at the time. And that obviously wasn't my purpose, but I did start to respond, you know, and going out and picking up these animals that they were going to euthanize and trying to give them a good home. And of course, that was something that was a big learning curve because I didn't know anything about lions or tigers. But yeah, that's quite a learning curve. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. And so it was um, very expensive, and you know, and it was definitely dangerous in the beginning because obviously you make mistakes and and find out the hard way that you shouldn't do this or that and <laughs> yeah and the lessons you learn are maybe a little harder than the lessons that most entrepreneurs learn because there isn't a tiger on the other end of most of the mistakes we yeah, make yeah yeah no i ended up in the hospital quite a few times going well don't do that anymore and <laughs> wow. don't do that <laughs> yeah that makes me think like when i was thinking about talking to you you know i talked to a lot of business leaders and entrepreneurs and you, you know almost everyone starts as an entrepreneur kind of like you did and that they have something that just bothers them. At least the best kind of entrepreneurs are usually trying to solve a problem or, you know, get into something that just needs doing. But sure. your example, I think, is the most uh, amazing <laughs> of any I've come across because you were just, you know, a kid and you're working yeah. on a farm and all of a sudden you're handling tigers and lions. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it was one of those things that, that I didn't think it was really going to happened. I thought I'd make a few phone calls and solve the problem like most people and that didn't help. And so then I kept thinking about how those animals looked at me when I was at that zoo. And I kept thinking, you know, there's probably dozens of people that have seen this and said, well, somebody ought to do something about this and then just walked on. And, and I thought, well, I don't want to be one of those people that doesn't do something about it. So I just kind of kept following the progression. And, and then when 
um, I sent that letter out. I started getting phone calls from all sorts of zookeepers and, and interns and people that were crying and saying, look, we don't want to euthanize these animals. And so it really was like, I was glad to hear that everybody felt the same way. There just was no solution until that time. So that really changed the whole path of your life. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was 40, 41 <laughs> years ago and yeah. Yeah, worked uh, seven days a week for 41 years and taking care of animals. Yeah. I bet there's not a whole lot of vacations or, no. you know, no. and you're definitely not doing this to get rich. You're doing this to, to do a good thing. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's definitely no getting rich in this. And, you no. know, I've, I have no savings, no retirement, no anything. This is all I've ever done. And in fact, I ended up working jobs for the first 18 years just like to help that. support the sanctuary. Yeah. And you know, for people that don't know the wildlife sanctuary, you know, we'll, we'll post links that you can go look, but you know, the, you, you know, you had to deplete your savings and do all the stuff, the animals, oh, yeah. their journey to, from where they've, where they were when you rescue them to where they are now. I mean, it is an absolutely beautiful, expansive, gorgeous place for these animals to roam like they should be. Can you tell me a little bit about the vision of that and how you, I mean, that is such an audacious vision. You went from your farm to what is today, what, 11,000 acres? Yeah. It's so almost 11,000 acres. And, uh, um, yeah, it's the, the main thing was when I first started again, I was just trying to stop these, you know, beautiful, healthy animals from being euthanized because it just seemed in, insane to me at the time. But when I first started, then I realized really quick that the, you know, the government regulations back then required that all these animals stay in, you know, like a concrete floor and steel bars or steel chain link and then a roof on it. And it was a very stringent type cage situation. And, and, and I felt like, well, geez, I'm, I might be saving their life, but what quality of life do they have? And I said, is this really even, is there really a point to this? Because I'm just, you know, taking them from one cage and putting them in another cage. And, and so I kept bugging the government, you know, like, like, couldn't we let them into bigger spaces? And they're like, oh, no, they have to be in these, you know, confined spaces and because they're obviously dangerous. And, and there was a loophole in the, in the regulations that said, you know, like for a circus or a movie animal actor, they could be taken out of their cage and go work on a movie set or, or go into a ring and perform. And so they could be taken out of their cages. They just couldn't live outside their cages all the time. So I used that loophole to be able to start letting them out. So I fenced the entire farm and then I started to let, you know, lions and tigers out at a time and they'd go out for, you know, two or three hours and run and play and maybe tired and come back in. And, and I started to rotate the animals and that to me, I could see them coming to life. You know, they were like, Oh, first time a lot of them had ever run in their life before because they'd always been in small cages. And so then I said, okay, now this makes sense where if I can find a way to, you know, give these guys the big open spaces that they could live in and just stay in, then it, then there's a point to this. And, and so I fought with the government constantly for the first, I don't know, 10 or 15 years trying to, to circumvent or, or get them to change the regulation. And, and they were just like most people, they were terrified that these animals would escape and get it go run off if they ever got out and and in working with the animals i realized early on that you know it's no different than like um you know in the backyard if you go in a, in a subdivision and i said to you hey climb that fence and have a picnic in your neighbor's backyard you know, yeah, right. like, well, he's gonna be really upset well yeah. that's kind of how they felt about their their cages no matter how small or how big they were that was their territory and they knew they were safe in their territory, but anytime they went to somebody else's space or a, a space they didn't know about, they were scared. And so initially letting them out, I was like, oh, well, look, they're not ready to go just run off to the mountains or, you know, disappear. 
they actually had to be coaxed out and, and, and shown that it was a safe environment to go and play. So it's kind of like taking your dog to a, a dog park, you know, and if they've never been before, the first time it's pretty overwhelming for most dogs to go and say, well, there's all this space and who owns it? And, you know, am I going to get in trouble playing or not? Or And so I, a lot of the early years were spent learning the psychology behind how these animals saw, you know, saw where their confinement or their, their life was like. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like you, in some ways, put yourself through the biggest master's class on animal behavior, <laughs> yeah. you know, the school of hard yeah. knocks of animal behavior, because I think yeah. you figured out a lot of things that no one else knew. No, absolutely. And even today, you know, there's still so many people that follow that whole principle of, oh, my God, these things ever get out, they're going to, you know, head to the hills and kill everybody and stand yeah. right again. And they're actually just terrified to leave their, their, their own territory, their own space. So whether that's a small cage or 100 acres, it doesn't matter. So you could actually have a, a two-foot fence, and they're not going to just jump over this fence and go take off. If you took a wild tiger from you know from the wild or a lion from the wild and brought them, well, of course, they're going to want to go back to the wild, and that's a whole different story. But I learned on, early on that captive animals saw the world in a whole reverse setting. Yeah, it was pretty amazing, and that helped tremendously to build these large habitats and then know what it would take to, you know, in essence, keep them there. Because, like, when we rescue a new animal, we never just throw them into a big open space like that because it would be scary. It'd be like taking a child up in the mountains and turning them loose, say, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's very overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. So, but if you went up and camped all the time and they got to stay up there and then you spent, yeah. you know, weeks, then they'd be like, okay, this seems safe enough. I've seen everything. So, anytime we have new animals that we rescue, they go through a rehabilitation process where they get to start in a small cage similar to what they came from so that it's not overwhelming and and then within a you know weeks or days they go into a little bit bigger and and then we try to always put the the enclosure inside of the habitat they're going to end up living in and that way they can see that space for many days weeks whatever right and then one day we just kind of open the door and you know some of them will come marching right out and other ones will stay there and go no and they come out every once in a while and go back in. And so, you know, it's it's all about them feeling safe and, and then they can start to enjoy that space. That's amazing. That's an amazingly empathic way to go about caring for these, like, highly traumatized animals. Yeah, no, it's true. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, so good for you, you guys. I mean, I think that's one of the most amazing things. And you all have an innovation that I think helps people understand how much you all care for these animals. Because in most situations, even when people are trying to do good, you know, it's good to have visitors see the animals because it raises awareness. But you all went further than I think anyone would imagine to be able to have a way for people to see these animals and learn without impacting them in any way. Can you tell me a little bit about that walkway, which is I think in the Guinness Book of World Records now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, Early on, you know, we, we weren't open to the public for the first 20 years of doing this. We just rescued animals and took care of them. But the problem was getting worse. And so more and more people were doing this and trying to have them as pets and breeding and selling. And so we, and the public, general public, didn't know anything about this problem. And so we realized that we really needed to reach a lot of people. And the only way to do that would be open to the public. And I was always opposed to that. You know, our board of directors and everybody else would always say, hey, you know, open to the public and charge admission. And and I was like, no, that's terrible for the animals. You know, they're terrified of people. Yeah. So, like, if you go to the zoo at 6 in the morning before it ever opens, the animals are laying around calmly. But when all the people start to pour in, those are all strangers. And to them, they're all threats to their 
their safety to their habitat and their territory. Especially with the experiences they've had. Yeah. And so, you know, no, and when they, everybody would say, let's open, I'd be like, no, I, you know, first of all, it's a losing proposition. You lose money being open to the public and you don't make money because even all the zoos in the country get subsidies and, you know, all sorts of things to try and make them make their budget, you know, um, even. So it wasn't really a financial decision. It was about this education. But at the same time, I still didn't want the animals to have that problem where all these people showed up every day and on the ground level and scaring them. But I, early on, when I was building um, enclosures and habitats and things like that, I realized that every time I was up in the air, like on a rooftop or whatever, it didn't matter what kind of noise I made. I could be running power equipment or chainsaws or whatever. And, and the animals acted like I didn't even exist. So I realized that they didn't think that sky or air was territory and that it was no threat to them. And so eventually when we got to this point of saying, let's open to the public and educate people, I said, well, the only way we're going to do that is if we have an elevated observation system. So, you know, of course it was just theory at the time. And, sure. and so we built an initial maybe a hundred, maybe a hundred yard long um, ramp going up to a big observation deck. And, when, and again, we weren't open to the public at the time, but by word of mouth, people would always come out and want to see them. So we were just working and everybody was a volunteer and feeding and cleaning, but people would come and go up this, this elevated walkway. And, and we were just looking to see if uh, the animals cared and they didn't care, you know, no matter what the people, you know, if they talked to us or made noise or it was just as if they didn't exist. Right. And now the, the challenge is to build a long walkway that goes over the habitats so that people can actually see these animals and learn about where they came from, because every animal here, came from some amazing uh, story you know they were in terrible places and so we started to build more and more of the walkway but as you say it eventually ended up being the world's longest elevated walkway <laughs> and got the guinness book of World records for it when we wasn't anything that we intended you know yeah, it just kind of developed yeah we just were building it so that people could access more of the animals to see them and and eventually we realized it was definitely the longest elevated footbridge in the world so we had the Guinness Book of World Records come out and certify it. and <laughs> It's like 30 feet in the air and a mile and a half long or something. Yeah, yeah. It varies wow. anywhere from 16 feet at the lowest to 45 feet at the highest. Wow. And, and it goes over a, a mile and a half, like you say. And so people walk down and then they come back. And so it's a three-mile walk to see the animals. And that's just a you know portion of what's here. That's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, I, I know our vice president, Lindsay, has seen the walkway and been on it. And I encourage everyone to go on the web and look at this facility and look at the walkway. I think it's the most humane, considerate, kind way I've ever seen of anyone be like, yeah, you want to see tigers and you want to see lions, but let's not impact them while we're seeing yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. You know, because yeah. you can tell like the lions couldn't give a crap that people are up on this walkway. They're sleeping, hanging out, you know, and so sometimes you're walking right over lions and tigers and other times they're you know, quarter mile out in the middle of a big habitat where you have to use binoculars to see them. But either way, they're living their life and just enjoying it. And, you know, we're just a, a kind of a fly on the wall, seeing them all do their thing. I think it's the only organization that uh, uh, that has to do with animals that I've ever seen where you have managed to make it about the animals entirely and not about the people. Yeah, absolutely. That was the thing is, like I told you, I got drug into opening to the public, kicking and screaming because... Yeah. I was absolutely concerned about the animals and wanted to make sure that it was a win for them. And it did. It ended up being a great way for people to learn and not impact the animals. And it allowed us to, um, you know, even 
build more uh, habitats and save more animals. And so it was the right thing to do. And it was, it was a big leap of faith because it cost yeah. millions of dollars. And, oh, and we, built it, we built it all ourselves. You know, it wasn't something so where we work. just paid contractors to do it. Yeah. You guys, are, you guys must have some incredible people on your, in your, on your team. So let's talk a little bit about, I don't think that many people are aware still. I think there's more awareness, but what the real crisis is. And there is a real crisis of people breeding these animals. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, we refer to it as a captive wildlife crisis. And so when I first started, I didn't realize, even though I had gotten licensed and changed the zoning and did everything the right way when I was young and had the farm. But at the time, I should have realized if they were zoos were crazy enough to send animals to a 17-year-old kid, even though I was licensed, that they were dumping them everywhere. And I didn't know that at first. But it was pretty quickly I realized that we started getting calls from, you know, local sheriffs that said, hey, I found one in a house or an apartment or a garage oh. or you know, somebody's basement or a barn. And right. and everybody would get one, try to have it as a pet. And when that didn't work out, well, then they'd, they'd end up with getting a female so they could breed them and have babies and play with the babies. And so pretty quickly, this thing got out of hand. It went from no animals outside the public zoo system to... Today, there's over 20,000 lions, tigers, bears that are outside the zoo system in the United States. And My God. It's a crazy thing. And then um, many people might have seen Tiger King, which was a Netflix thing. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, there were 70 million people that saw that show. And and really, that was the first time that that many people really were exposed to the fact that there's guys out there like the, the featured characters in there that breed 70 to 100 baby tigers a year just to make money on them. And then three months later, they want to just dump them or get rid of them because they're, they, they're no longer making money for them. Yeah, and they're harder to take care of when they're large. Yeah, they cost money. You can't charge people money to play with one because at that point, you'll get hurt. That's terrible. <laughs> I mean, I'm understating. It's like evil. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So I'm really, uh, I'm thankful you guys are there to help with the problem. But did, did you find with the Tiger King show, which is, you know, uh, an unfortunate sort of fortunate unfortunate the the show itself is i wish we would stop as a as a country or as a people stop doing shows mm -hmm. about distasteful human beings doing terrible right. things right, right. as entertainment but did you find that it helped spread the message a little bit or helped at all with fundraising yeah i mean i knew of these characters long you know i've been doing this 41 years longer than any of these people and so many of these really bad players had come onto the scene and were breeding and selling and even shooting and killing, you know, lions and tigers and crazy stuff. So I knew about these people, um, and a lot of people that would run into them would come back to me and go, "Oh my God, how can somebody like this exist?" And I said, "Yeah, it's it's extremely hard to imagine that somebody that crazy can just keep operating and doing what they do." But there was, you know, dozens of these people out there, and so the the show started off to be about the animals, but quickly the characters were so extreme they took over the whole point of the show and. And but the good news was, again, 70 million people saw this and, and saw that there was baby tigers and other animals that were being exploited. Um, so the great thing was that it created enough groundswell pressure that the government finally started to prosecute these people. When you know, for years we had been begging for, for people like that to get, you know, investigated and prosecuted and to prove that they were doing all sorts of illegal things and terrible and it was just took that much public pressure to come on so suddenly that now out of um, three of the, the main characters that were in that show, um, we've now, those three have been shut down and we've rescued over 127 of those animals from those, from just the three of them. And there's still, you know, more to, to be done. So you have a, you, right now, currently with more on the way, you have 127 
of those abused, mm-hmm. like tigers and lions and bears. Right, right. that came um, from Tiger King characters facilities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> you know, I think people watch that show and maybe they don't think beyond this is entertaining. Yeah. Some people, other people, I'm sure it really impacts them. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, uh, on behalf of humanity, thank you for taking those <laughs> taking those animals in and giving them a better life. Yeah, no, it's it's extremely expensive and you know a lot of work to do all that. Obviously, it costs about ten thousand dollars per animal per year to to try and take care of them. So, you know, we have over six hundred and fifty lions, tigers, bears, wolves, leopards, things that were all confiscated from people that were either le- illegally had them or were abusing them or there was some you know bad circumstance where they had to be you know come to us because we don't we don't just go out and collect animals. We only collect animals that are either going to be euthanized or or, you know, are suffering greatly somewhere. Yeah, and I'm sure it's a very costly and complex process to try to get a lion that's already, or a tiger yeah. that's already pretty pissed off to get him and re- rehabilitate him. Yeah, and a lot of the, the extreme characters that were in Tiger King, when we went there, you know, everybody carried guns and, and you know, were known for shooting all sorts of things. And so we're in an environment where you're trying to rescue an animal and, and have to worry about getting your head blown off by one of these crazy people. So you basically picked the most dangerous entrepreneur journey <laughs> that anyone has ever chosen. <laughs> yeah, one way or the other, it's the animals that, yeah. you know. And if they wanted to kill me, I would have been dead a long time sure. ago. But their idea of playing is to toss you 20 feet in the air and yeah. jump on you and drag you around and bite holes through everything you've got. Right. And in their mind, they're just playing in yours. You're, you're lucky to be alive, yeah. So if one of them decides to love you a little too hard, you know, that's not a great thing for you. Yeah, just sitting on you. I, you know, had many of them over the years that want to sit in your lap and at 700 pounds, that's not very possible. <laughs> or, yeah, I'm sure that's an easy way to get injured too. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I think one thing I want to ask you about, and I'm going to come back to the cost, and we're going to talk about that a little bit because I really want people to understand that. But one thing that I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I've, I've talked to people about this and – you know, there are people who have tigers in their backyard or tigers in their shed or a bear in a cage the size of a dog crate or a large dog crate. And most people just kind of can't believe that because most people think, you know, tigers obviously dangerous. Why would I want one around me? Sure. So uh, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I know you all, what you know, you do the rescues, like the big big name rescues like the Joe Exotic, but you're going and just getting like a single bear from someone's house now and then. Right. Yeah, we've taken a, there was a lady in Minnesota that had three bear cubs that she thought she would raise as children. She had them in the house and had clothes for them and would sit them at the dinner table in high chairs and thought she was going to raise these three bears just like they were triplets or something. And of course it didn't work out. You know, they started tearing the house to pieces. And, but that's the thing is, is, 99.9% 99.9% of the people out there realize, boy, it's crazy. I wouldn't get a tiger as a pet because he's going to, you know, kill me or eat me or hurt me or, um, but they're that one tenth of 1% out of, you know, 350 million people, whatever, you know, there are, it is a lot of people. And so we still run into almost everybody we go to is in complete denial. They, you know, somehow think that they're doing a great job and the animals are starving or, or suffering greatly, or they, Think that they can somehow you know keep it as a pet and and show it to their friends and you know we had people call us um probably half a dozen times where somebody walks into a pet smart with a tiger on a leash thinking oh my God. they're just going to go to pet smart and get some supplies for their tiger and so most of them are, are people that are trying to get attention you know these are 
a lot of times it's young guys that want to act tough or cool or or whatever and there's other people that do it because they're animal hoarders and they started with maybe some some um, farm animals and ended up getting into you know lions and tigers Sorry, I have an English bulldog snoring at my <laughs> feet here, so I don't, know, I don't know if that's coming through or not. You know what? It doesn't matter. We, I, you know, with what you do for a living, we excuse you from all noise. <laughs> you know, if you have a bulldog and, a, uh, you know, you've got tigers outside, don't worry about it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's one of those things that people don't think about that that world exists. But, yeah. you know, it's kind of a little sad and a little crazy at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it really is. You know, there's people that, have, you know, have elephants um privately there's people that have polar bears privately there's um you know extreme animals that just uh and and so many of these are off the grid you know some of them are up front one attention and other ones are just off the grid where nobody even knows that they have these animals until one escapes or or you know gets in trouble somewhere yeah some something bad happens so i know you've saved I think I read that you've saved over a thousand animals and I'm sure Mm -hmm. the impact you've had beyond that by inspiring other people, you've probably saved a lot more. Um, And each one has a story, but is there any particular rescue story for you that's really touched you that you'd like to tell us about? Is there anyone that stands out to you in all those? Well, there's, yeah, there's different kinds of ways that they've touched me. Like, you know, um, and you know down deep in in your soul every one of these animals seeing them go from when you arrive to to save them and they're starving or they're you know have open wounds or whatever and and you know you're going to be able to help them but seeing them transition obviously is where the the payoff is for us because if you all you saw was the negative side every time you went and got these animals and never got to see the recovery i i couldn't have lasted 41 years i would have been insane in the first year but so seeing the recovery helps a ton. And we had one tiger that um, is still here with us today that was out in Mexico and he had had his back broken. And so he just drug his back legs around. And so every bit of his legs had open sores down to the bone and, and no medical care, no nothing. He was just chained up on, on this concrete patio. And, and so when we got him, you know, your initial indication is to think, well, geez, you know, there's nothing we can do. You know, this guy's suffering so bad. Maybe we should you know, put him to sleep or do something. And, and over the years, I've always learned to never give up and to always try as long as the animals aren't, aren't suffering. And so we rescued him and brought him back. And and thank God we had a, a veterinarian and still have a veterinarian that is, um, her specialty is stem cell therapy. And so she started to do stem cell treatments to this tiger and in hopes that he would at least gain some feeling or something to where he could control his legs better maybe never walk but control his legs better because he just drug like you know wet noodles behind him and and it, it actually worked i mean he started to get his legs underneath him and he started to be able to sit normal and then next thing you know he's standing and then finally you know a year and a half later he actually ran for the first time ever you know and and uh it was just blew my mind to watch that that day to see him you know going from where I thought we were gonna to have to euthanize him the first day I saw him to the point where he could live like another tiger and, and play and run and live in a habitat. And uh, it's just a miracle. It was truly a miracle. And, and obviously um, one of those rare cases because we'd had the resources to do it. But, um, and then we had other rescues that were just crazy where we're you know trying to get animals from drug dealers and, and they have armed guards with M16s and they're um, you go to their facility and, and you're not sure you're going to come out because these guys have, you know, 
terrible reputations and they're mad and they, they don't want you to be there and, and yet you're thinking, oh my God, any second, you know, we're going to get, everybody will just get killed and buried out back somewhere. And, you know, so there's lots of different stories and, and animals that, you know, we've saved and rescued over the years that um, were pretty monumental and, and mean a lot, you know. And, and there's also, also ones that, that, you know, I knew very well for, lived here their whole life, 24 years. Wow. And, you know, was very close to for all those years. Yeah, so they're almost like friends because they've yeah, been around so yeah. long. That's amazing, man. Um, that, I mean, that is just truly amazing. So we've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end by we're going to talk a little bit about how much the sanctuary costs to operate and fundraising because I really want people to be able to know how to help. But we focus on storytelling a lot on this podcast, and we also talk about leadership. But I've been thinking a lot about the Wild Animal Sanctuary and how you tell the story of this brand. And how you know important it is that you tell the story. So, how do you think about that as you all are operating? How do you go about thinking about telling your story and making sure people know? Well, the number one thing that, as you said in the early part of the show, is just most people don't even realize this problem exists, and and when you tell them, they almost don't believe it. And and again, that's why Tiger King was so amazing, is it it showed them like right in right in those people's living room. Okay, yeah. here it is, front and center, and. But so for us, that's always the challenge right off is just getting people to realize that this problem exists and that it's on a giant scale and that it's a monumental problem that that needs to be solved. And so from day one, we've always entered this when I started to to solve the problem, not to just participate in and give animals homes. I mean, I wanted to make sure they were all the ones we rescued lived well, but truly it was about trying to find a way to, to solve this problem. And, and it really boils down to breeding because like Joe Exotic and all those guys, you know, if they breed 70 to 100 tigers a year, we're going to have to take another 70 to 100 tigers a year for every one of those guys. And that's not what it's about. It's about trying to stop it. And I really believe that that public pressure is where the answer really lies because um, a lot of times I use the analogy that, you know, if your neighbor calls you up and said, hey, I have a tiger cub. You want to come see it? Most people are like, wow, how many chances do I ever get to see a tiger cub? Well, I'll come over and see it. But if they called you up and said, hey, I found this baby by a dumpster. Do you want to come see it? This human baby would be like, well, why aren't you calling the police? Why aren't you taking it to a hospital? What are you going to do with that baby? You know, And the level of concern that they had that was different. One, they wanted to go see it and pet it. The other one, they wanted to go, they were worried about its, its, its welfare. And so it really takes people caring enough to say, wait a minute. Like when they see somebody like Joe Exotic where you go, oh, you can pull over here and pay 200 bucks to play with baby tigers. I get it that maybe we can pet it, but I'm worried about it. It's going to live 24 years. Where's it going to go? Who's going to take care of it? And so for us, our brand is really about trying to get people to understand that this is serious and that people, there's a giant problem that we need to solve it. And there's only certain ways we can solve it. Because even if you pass all the laws in the world, people still break the law and, you know, guns and drugs and you name it. So we'll always have the problem, but for us, it's really about trying to sing, change the social conscious about how people value animals in general. Yeah, and especially these rare animals that, you know, are large and majestic and beautiful and, you know, part of history. And so, yeah, I'm sure that's a real, that is just a storytelling challenge and a, and a marketing challenge and a fundraising challenge. One of the things I noticed about way I wanted to just call out that, that you all do with your storytelling, and, and I'd encourage everyone to go to the web their website and look at some of the videos. You all don't do, you know, the Sarah McLaughlin like really dramatic music and the animal suffering thing. 
I've noticed that all your stories are just, you don't exploit the animal's pain to try to get to pe people to care. And I'm, I'm very touched by that because you're just making it harder on yourself in a way, but you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And we, and we learned early yeah. on that most everybody knows that animals suffer. I mean, yeah. I don't think anybody out there isn't aware that, and, and most people we run into that are really good supporters. The first thing they say is I don't want to see that because I know it exists. I want to know about what are we doing to solve that problem? So we skip by the whole, Hey, here's all the gross, terrible blood and guts and you know, all that, because you, you already know that otherwise we wouldn't be in business. What we want to do is tell you about what we can do for those animals and what we can do to help solve this problem. And, and so that's where we get a lot of our traction and support and things yeah. like that. There's just a lot of hope. Uh, I see a lot of hope and a lot of beauty in your storytelling. Well, thank you. Yeah. And, thank you. And I think that's really admirable because the way you tell the animal stories, there's just this through line of, you know, real empathy and real care that I think is, you know, we need more of it period across the board, but you all have done a wonderful job with that. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. So let me, let me talk to you a little bit about leadership. Um, so you have a team, you know, a lot of volunteers, you know, I know you have employees as well. And, uh, what you all do is so unique and so challenging. And I think probably really heart wrenching at times. So how do you keep your team moving forward and motivated? Well, early on, it was just leading by example. I think, you know, I was, I built, when I first started, I didn't have enough money to do anything. So I learned, okay, if you're going to get something or you need something, you don't have to learn how to do it yourself. So everything from, you know, plumbing, electrical to construction to you name it. I mean, it was welding. And so I just learned very quickly. Every time we needed something, I had to learn how to do this or do this or do this. And, and I think that inspires others to say, wow, you know, you don't have to have a degree in this or degree in that. And so like our animal caretakers, we don't require them to have biology degrees or, or anything that's specialized at all in animals. What we do is we look for people that have already committed their life to helping animals, people that have, you know, kids that have gone to the shelter and, and volunteered and, and did a number of things in their life to point out the fact that they, they do value animals. And, um, and then we'll train them. We'll, we'll teach them everything they need to know about how to care for these animals and what they need. And, and so I think that everybody realizes that there is no pretentious anything here. Everything is really about the animals. And if you're not here for the animals, then, you know, have a good life and, and, and we wish you the best. But only the people that really dedicate their lives to animals are really here to do what they need to be done. Right. So you find people who are really passionate about the mission. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody here is every bit as passionate as I am about animals. That's great. Yeah. And it comes through. I mean, the, the, everything from your website to any of the articles I've read about you all and, you know, my, uh, vice president's firsthand experiences and she's probably one of your biggest fans. So <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing what you guys do. I think a lot of businesses could learn a lot from what you all do because the dedication and the way that you help each other get this done is really admirable. Yeah. And the few stories that I've read about other, you know, people that have really made a big difference and had, um, really massive impacts in different ways. I think their stories are very similar where they were just uh, very iconic in what they were doing. And people said, Hey, you know, here's somebody who's really in it for the right reasons and not somebody who's in it for the money or yeah. is in it for glory or anything else. You're right. in it just to really help the animals. And, and so whether you're doing that or, or running a business for something else, I think that comes through pretty quickly to, to people that, that, you know, want to evaluate, you know, the, the original founder or the director or, or you know, whoever it is. Yeah, and also it's pretty hard to sustain anything difficult 
you know, like whether that's just a small business that that's hard because economically it's challenging or the example, like, you know, I look to you guys and any day I've had that's hard. And I've been doing this for about 27 years is, is your all's easiest day, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, so you're a great example, I think for all of us of like how, how passion and dedication to like the mission of what you're doing will really yeah. sustain you. So well, that's amazing. You. A lot of people always go, Oh, you know, what's going to happen when, you know, if you get hit by a bus and I'm like, I'm not worried a bit because everybody here has that torch. Everybody here carries it on. And, you know, we have a complete, you know, development department and marketing and PR and, you know, everybody. So we have a ton of people here that, so I might be the crazy guy that dreams up the, the elevated walkway or, or, you know, whatever else, but, but by far and large, everybody here would carry that torch no matter what. So I, I think that's the thing that people real need to realize is, you know, it doesn't just snuff out the second that I'm going. Yeah. I mean, it's quite an organization that you all have built over the years. I mean, it's very large. And so let's talk a little bit about, I don't think people have any idea the amount of money it takes to run something like this. You know, I think we might even just appreciate it, but we still don't know. So can you talk about that a little? Yeah, well, having 650 lions, tigers, and bears, we feed over 80,000 pounds of food a week. Whoa. So that in itself is a massive undertaking to create the diets for, you know, 650 large carnivores and, and other animals and and then feed that multiple times a week, you know, and, and get that out. So 80,000 pounds a week is about $8 million a year in food. And so... Um, we're very grateful that we have, you know, uh, a very large sponsor that helps, you know, supply that food to us. And, and that helps tremendously because then we can direct those resources towards habitats and, and other things. But, but just an army of people to just sort that food. And well, even the drivers, we have refrigerated trucks and full-time drivers that go pick up all this food and bring it back. And an army of employees and volunteers, both that sort the food and get it ready for the daily feedings and, um, but we have over 85 employees and we have um, over 160 volunteers. And so the total budget on a yearly basis is about $23 million a year. And that includes, you know, all the rescues we do, which we do international rescues all over the world. We've you know, been to, you know, dozens of countries all over the world helping with this problem because now many other countries are starting to have the same problem that we have here where, you know, economies have grown and people are getting more wealthy and more privileges and all of a sudden the first thing they think of is the crazy ones think of having a lion or a tiger so great it's starting to replicate and yeah. so we've, we've invested quite a bit in trying to solve those problems in other countries before it gets out of hand um, which we've done very well with but there's still a lot more countries that we have to work with um, but in general it's a massive undertaking to take care of these animals it takes a lot of time and energy and, and food and money and and just the equipment alone to our refuge that's in Southern Colorado to build the habitats down there that are, you know, 300 acres or 200 acres in size, each habitat and the amount of, you know, there's hundreds of miles of fencing that's involved in just surrounding these big, massive habitats that they have. Right. And then maintenance and the yeah. infrastructure and water and like, yeah. And then I, I can't imagine just the logistics of trying to get, you know, you, you think of all the different logistics you have to deal with, with supplies and med medical care, but just the logistics of a per of a feeding alone must just be like an army deploying. It does. And and to just know that that every day that that just that machine keeps working and the animals get these amazing diets that when we're in the nutrition center and you look at the food that they get to eat, you think, geez, these guys eat way better than any of us <laughs> ever get to eat. And, you know, the, the donations that come in sometimes, you know, they're eating lobster and crab and 
salmon and you know the bears are are just feasting on these amazing meals and and we're all eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and doing whatever we can to survive that's great yeah i saw a, a video of the the uh bears like chowing down on a bunch of pumpkins and they look like they're having the best time of their lives yeah yeah oh and they love it yeah they love it they get the peaches in the fall from palisade peaches which are you know really amazing peaches people buy cases of them and send them so that they can the bears can have these wonderful peaches and <laughs> we're watching them just going on and slobbering peach juice everywhere and we're like okay well at least somebody's getting it <laughs> that's so great um so you know with the pandemic that you know we all like you know we're we're still sort of coming out of and trying everyone trying to get back to some semblance of whatever normal is going to be from here um how did COVID, COVID impact your fundraising and your and all your operations well like pretty much everybody it definitely hit us you know from out of the blue where nobody was expecting any of this and um early on with the, the initial shutdowns that definitely um affected us and you know thankfully we were given the uh you know status to be able to come in and still feed the animals and take care of them and um but as far as donations and visitors and all those kinds of things that was um, impacted severely and our food supply was really impacted. You saw how people initially started to go for toilet paper, but that branched out into everything in the stores disappeared. And um, so for a while there, we were having a really difficult time trying to get food for the animals just because of these rushes on the, on markets. And so in the first few months, it was a, a real struggle. You know, people weren't donating as much because everybody was worried about what's the world coming to. And But eventually, um, as things kind of settled to where people could go out and, you know, at least they have a mask on or whatever. And with the uh, government, like, you know, um, uh, governors and other people saying, you know, go outside and do something outside. A lot of people said, oh, well, we could go to the sanctuary because they have that outdoor walkway. And, you know, so the later part of 2020, we actually saw more people just because it was a, a good place for people to go. And so and I think that between the two, you know, we still ended up in a negative, obviously, for 2020, but 2021 has been better and people are starting to get more comfortable with this. And so, you know, we don't really know where it's all going to end up. But, you know, it was definitely a struggle just like it was for most people. I'm glad that you all, you know, navigated it. And I'm sure it was an, an incredible challenge and really hurt your all's overall operating budget. So we'll, we will, at the on this podcast and in the materials we put out on LinkedIn and everything, we're going to try to direct right to your donations page because, well, quite frankly, you know, anything anyone can do, you know, because everyone's trying to get back on track, but, you know, these animals, these animals got to get fed and they got to get fed every day. Yeah, they don't have any, any say in it at all. You know, a lot of us kind of felt like animals would do this whole COVID thing where we didn't get much choice in what was going on. Yeah, maybe we got to experience what the helplessness they feel a little bit. Yeah. So let me ask, let me end. I always end with just some really quick questions and we've got about five or 10 more minutes. And, um, so what do you think makes you feel inspired or your best self at work? Oh man. Um, you know, I'm, I still connect with animals, even from when I grew up on that farm, you know, I mean, I felt an affinity to them. I seemed like I could, you know, communicate with animals really well, or at least instead of so much communicating with them, um, I observe animals very well. And so that to me makes it feel like I really, I always put myself in their shoes, you know, and try to see the world from their side. So I still think that that's really inspires me when I, um, when we go out and we rescue all these animals and it's like meeting, you know, 20, 30 new refugees. It's like saving them and each one's got their own story, their own background, their own, 
likes and dislikes and and so you know we're really in the business of saving souls or lives if you want to call it that and and so it still inspires me to meet every last animal and get to know every last animal we rescue um so that i'm sure personally that we're doing the right thing for that animal because you know what you might do for this tiger might not work at all for this tiger all right so that's great so you get still get that satisfaction out of each animal that joins your your crew there yeah that's amazing yeah. So is there any piece of advice over the years, like you you all have accomplished so much, is there any one piece of advice that really sticks with you that you got early on? Uh, early on, you know, I, like most people, we make the mistake of thinking that, um, you know, as far as trying to get support for what we were doing is that, you know, instantly everybody cares and, and you realize everybody has different interests in life and different things like that. And um, so one of the things that we had to learn early on was, you know, hey, if you're not um, presenting your story and your needs to the right people, then, you know, you're going to suffer greatly and the animals will suffer greatly. And, and so being just like a parent, when you're raising your kids and, and you feel that responsibility that, geez, I got to pay the bills. I have to have a roof over their head. I have to have food for them to eat. You really quickly start to sweat the fact of, okay, well, where are we going to get support for these animals? You know, because every time I would rescue one, I'd say, oh, there's another 20 years. I got to take care of this tiger or or bears can live 40 years, I'd say, oh, now there's another bear that we are, I'm responsible for for 40 years. Yeah, and right. So you start to really think about, you know, that. And and so early on we were struggling because we didn't know what, what what we needed to do. And then finally we were very blessed to meet a guy that was a, uh, an incredible marketing person and, and who really understood, you know, he said, you really need to find out who it is that has the affinity for these animals like you do and, and how to find those people. And, and, you know, cause we were telling our story to the whole world and we still do in, in that sense, but making sure that we were getting in front of the people that would instantly go, oh, yeah, I've, I've, I care about this. I really do care about these animals, um, made a giant difference. So, you know, starting 15, 16, 18 years ago, whenever it was, we started to really focus our message to make sure that it, we were telling everybody, but for sure it was getting in front of the right people that, that, would care about the animals and and knew exactly what or felt exactly how we felt about the animals and that made a gigantic difference in in our ability to you know bring in more raise more money yeah. and also help more animals because i know there was a turning point where i said okay i can take care of this many animals pretty much myself and it got to that size you know 30 years ago and and i had to make the, the decision do i just stay this size and and just one man fight this deal and or do, do we really take this more? And I, and I, even though I didn't really want to grow bigger, I knew that if I, it was irresponsible to not help more animals. And I thought, you know, it can't be selfish and say, I'm going to help 30 animals because that's what I can do reasonably myself. Or do I want to help 300 or 3000 animals and do it? And it's going to be where I have to sacrifice what's, what's good for me. Yeah, right. And so I did, I made that decision. I said, okay, you know, screw it. It doesn't matter what's good for me. What matters is what's good for the animals. And, you know, so I, when I crossed that bridge, then my focus really became like, like, uh, very laser sharp about what is it, what do I need to do to make this better and help more animals and, and really try to solve this problem. And so there was a big turning point back then about that. Good for you. And that advice that you, that you were given and, and put into practice so well of finding your audience and finding your tribe, that is, I mean, I'm, we're a marketing company and we give the same advice. It's really great advice. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard and you start to have to really learn and, and work at finding those. But when you do, 
it definitely pays off. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you one one final question. I'll get you out of here on time. Um, I really appreciate your time today. This sure, has been thank you. This has been so enjoyable. Um, what would you tell your younger self today? What advice would you give your younger self? Um, yeah, definitely. People ask me all the time, did I see it getting to where it is today when I was young? And I said, you know, animal-wise, yes. Meaning I, when I realized there were so many more than what I originally thought were in, in dire need, I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is something where um, I'm going to have to really scale this up to help that many animals. And so I kind of knew ahead of time that that was going to be that. But definitely this this whole educational component was something that I never expected to do. Um, and in, when I started to do it, I really saw the benefit. I really could see how, and even today as people visit, it's amazing how when they walk out and on the walkway and they're not necessarily um, what I would call, you know, animal activists or anything like that. And, and just the transition of seeing the first time in their life that they've seen animals exhibited in a whole different way and coming back and going, wow, you know, it was really cool to see these animals just living their life and doing their thing. Um, that's something that I never really understood. And, and I would love to go back and say to myself, hey, this is really important and you, you should do it much sooner in life than what we did, you know, even though we've been doing it almost 20 years now. Um, actually, yeah, pretty close to 20 or 25 years of educating. But I would have really loved to adapt to that early on and, and realize the importance of it back then. But I was in the middle of trying to learn how to take care of lions and tigers more than, than yeah. educating people. So, right. yeah, no big deal. Not like taking care of a lion or tiger is hard to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's great advice and it's great perspective that you have now. And I think, you know, you all are doing amazing work and, and educating people about this. So, uh, yeah, we're happy to, to help tell your story a little bit and uh, get the word out there. So, you know, I think, kind of, thank you. absolutely. And I think organizations that, that don't do something as meaningful or as mission-based as that, what you're doing, but are helping in their own little way can learn a lot from you all and how you do business. So yeah. thank you well, for thank that. You. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to make sure you tell people? Um, no, I mean, I think that you, you suggested that they go to the website because there is so much more there material is. and information about what we do and the videos you know, they show everything from real rescues where they're you know, right there in the middle of the whole thing to many of the very inspiring stories of some of these animals that have, you know, come through hell and, and ended up with a wonderful life in the end. And so, you know, just going to the website would help a lot. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And I, I really, it was a pleasure to meet you. I, I can't say, uh, I can't even tell you how much I appreciate what you do. And you're obviously just a really kind, really empathic oh, human being. Thank you, sir. Uh, thank you.